This podcast features three supposed adults who definitely use adult language. They're also supposedly writers who are definitely not procrastinating by making this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to No Bad Ideas, the storytelling game show where we take the worst ideas from the internet and try to turn them into stories that are actually good. My name is Gabriel Urbina, and I am your first Bad Ideas host. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm your second Bad Ideas host. And my name is Zach Valenti, your third Bad Ideas host. And today, here in Bad Ideas HQ, or the Bad Ideas Swamp, depending on how you look at it, either way, it's the same awful place. We are joined by two very special guest stars. They are the luminaries behind one of the brightest stars in the audio fiction constellation of today. It's Oystein Brager and Philip Thorne, creators of The Amelia Project. How are you guys doing today? Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. We're so, so happy to, to have, have you. you here. Very excited to be here. Thank you so much. We are very, very excited to have you guys. Before we jump into the nonsense that we do on this show, can you guys just talk briefly about the nonsense that you do on your show? Like if anyone that's listening is not familiar with the Amelia Project, what is the very fast under a minute pitch for what it is and why it's awesome? Um, well, so the Amelia Project is uh, a show about a death faking agency. Um, every episode focuses on a new client who needs to disappear and start over with a completely blank slate. So it's a show about the the possibilities and absurdities of uh, self reinvention. Yes, and it's about nice. Coco. And along the way, it features a multitude of dazzling stars in Indeed. the audio fiction world. They absolutely fantastic cast to complement the absolutely fantastic writing of the show highly recommended we're trying to collect all of our all of our favorite actors in uh, in 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 audio drama <laughs> we have also played that pokemon game um <laughs> and it is one of the better things we've done but right now we should handle the business of this show which is no bad ideas Every week we find a really, really terrible idea that somebody had. We bring it on. We horrify our hosts and our guests. And then we try to see how we could turn it into a good movie or a good TV show or a good novel or a good comic book or a good something uh, in just 10 very short minutes. Weirdly, not a ton of audio dramas, though. Strangely it enough, it's true. It's true. Um well, maybe this first idea will seem like a good fit for an audio drama. We'll see. But I have the first idea today. And then, very excitingly, our special guest stars have brought a bad idea of their own. Um, so we will do that after this one. But we got to start with the aperitif for today. From AP News, and there will be mm -hmm. a link to this in the episode description if you would like to read along, dear listeners. Headline reads, Indian couple longing for grandchild sues son and his wife. Woof. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> cool. Cool. Gosh. So, reporting from New Delhi, the Associated Press writes, 
a retired Indian couple is suing their son and daughter-in-law, demanding that they produce a grandchild within a year or pay them 50 million rupees, which is Ooh. the equivalent of about 675,000 US dollars. That's still a lot of money. Ooh, oh, yes. Yeah, that oh, is yes. more than I thought. Sanjeev Ranjan Prasad, a 61-year-old retired government officer, said it was an emotional and sensitive issue for him and his wife, Sadana Prasad, and they cannot wait any longer. His son, a pilot, was married six years ago. Quote, we want a grandson or granddaughter within a year or compensation because I have spent my life's earnings on my son's education. Oh my God. Prasad told reporters on Thursday. Prasad said he spent 3.5 million rupees, about $47,300 for his son's pilot training in the United States. Quote again, the main issue is that at this age, we need a grandchild. But these people, my son and my daughter-in-law, have an attitude <laughs> where they don't think about us, Prasad said. Whew. Cool. We got him married. Let me read that sentence one more time. We got him married <laughs> mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. hope we would have the pleasure of becoming grandparents. <laughs> it has been six years since their marriage, Prasad said. It feels as if despite having everything, we have nothing. Oh, my God. Wow. There's just so much there. Here comes the worst part. There's a worst part. The court accepted their petition Ooh. and scheduled it for a hearing on Monday in Haridwar, a city in northern Uttarakhand state, media reporters said. The son and daughter-in-law could not be reached for comment. Prasad said he and his wife love children. Quote, we are not getting love and affection from where we want it the most, he said. I feel very unlucky. That is the end of the article. I apologize to any listeners from India. I did my darndest to find pronunciations for all of these names, but I'm sure that I messed at least one of them up. I'm very, very sorry. I will continue to try to do better. But that is what I have for you. These people who got their son married and now they demand within one year, he either produces that grandson or granddaughter or he pays up. My 10 God. minutes on the clock. What is this new and updated version of Kramer versus Kramer like? This is one hell of a am I the asshole <laughs> post. <laughs> right. I, that's, that's the thing is I need to, I think for, the first thing we need to do is to remove this from the context of India because there are, I think, some some cultural and behavioral norms that we don't understand that are playing Agreed. in Agreed. the story. Mm -hmm. So like this, this should absolutely be happening in New York, a la Kramer versus Kramer. And I would love some terrifying Upper West Side elderly folk to demand grandchildren. <laughs> um, this is a Clint Eastwood role. This is the turn he's been waiting for. <laughs> Wow. Clint Eastwood and Maggie Smith finally together. <laughs> no, the question is, do I do they go on the I think there I see three different options here. Revenge spree. Uh -huh. Naturally. Naturally. I think there is, you know, taking inspiration from our wonderful guests today, uh perhaps 
a service that could invent some grandchildren uh, for <laughs> those who, who don't want <laughs> to actually right. have children. Some, some grandchildren could be acquired. Acquired, given some cocoa. And, and then the other thing is one of those heartwarming two people meet at a support group for elderly folks who don't have grandchildren and we do a rom-com of some sort that way. Or it could be some kind of weird, absurd courtroom <laughs> drama. <laughs> Where for like whatever reason, this case that should be dismissed gets accepted. And then everyone in the courtroom who's like a community is dealing with the absurdity of this thing and the lawyers and the, the plaintiffs and, you know, the, the pilot son-in-law who is very confused about what's going on here. I think that if that's the case, though, it might need to be something like the case is going to be thrown out because it is patently absurd but then somebody <laughs> notices that if it is accepted and it goes a certain way it would set this very useful legal precedent for something mm. else and so mm. all of a sudden now there's a lot of stakes on how this goes like i don't think that it can be just as simple as they find the one eccentric judge that goes, yeah, sure. I want to see how this goes. Let's have it. Let's see how this trial. I work in small claims going. court and I'm bored. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually significantly more money than small claims court. but. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm curious about how exactly they, they work out the sum. Like, yes. what, what, what is it that, that this grandchild is kind of the, the worth, the monetary right. worth How of a grandchild? Factor... That idea fascinates me. Yeah. Yeah. Is that like the amount of money that they were would commit to spend on a grandchild? I like... don't get that from the parents. That doesn't... Yeah. I want yeah. to imagine that these are... And I think that like in the world where these, these are not these real people, but this is the version of these characters played by Clint Eastwood and Dame Maggie Smith. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they are the kind of people who studiously kept a ledger of every cent that they spent on the child growing mm -hmm. up. And this <laughs> is the aggregate amount. You know, they this want is it all back. This Adjusted is the for inflation. investment that we have put in. We yeah. demand that it either, that, you know, it either return or return in a different way. I think that was maybe the original intent because I think they mentioned like the the father spending money for his son's pilot license. I have spent my life's earnings on my son's education. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, adjusted for inflation, that is the sum they were asking for and the sum he spent on the education were far apart. So they must have yeah. well, added a like lot more stuff Emotional damage that. calculation. Yes. Well, well yes. the, the bit that they quoted, the $47,000, that was only for his son's pilot training. That is not counting primary school and secondary right. school, his bachelor's degree, his et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the tutoring that he needed when he was in fifth grade and so on mm -hmm, and so forth. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a story, though, like how sad is this or how comic is this? Like, why why isn't this uh, pilot getting a, a, a child and, and with, right. uh, with his wife? Is that because they can't? Uh, or is it because he doesn't want to? Uh, what what's the, what's the story there? Yeah, I think that's a, an excellent point, because this becomes very tragic and vindictive if, you know, these people would like to yeah. have children, yes. but can't. Um, and for whatever reason, adoption or um, IV or whatever isn't isn't an option for them. Um, then 
you know, Clint Eastwood and Dame Maggie Smith seem like monsters. <laughs> but if if the answer is like he's a pilot, he jets around, like he, mm. you know, they neither of them have a lifestyle. They're completely fine just with each other and don't feel they need to have kids. And this comes maybe for years they've been kind of like pushing off the conversation, but they finally have it of like, look, dad, we're not we don't want kids. We're not planning on kids. And the prospective grandparents take it as, you know, an intense betrayal. I think that if this is a comedy, I completely agree with what you just said, Sarah. I think that if it's going to be a comedy, it needs to be that the children, i.e. the, the couple that is being sued, yeah. um, their company line for the six years of marriage has always been, we're going to have a child next year. Like, we really want to have a child. But, you know, this opportunity came up to go to Bali. This great career opportunity happened. We don't know where we're going to be moving to next year. Because I think that if at some point they sat down with, like, the parents and kind of went, look, mom, dad, this is just not a thing that is right for us. And yeah. you eat, you need to either take it or leave it. The parents then come across as a little bit more irrational. Whereas if it's something where they've just kind of been egging them on for years and delaying, right. delaying, delaying, then you can have the scene where, you know, the lawyer is citing your honor. When I read from the record that we entered into exhibit A of that conversation that your client had with his father, you can see that he promised, you know, within one year and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think like that that feeds into the courtroom drama or courtroom comedy in a major way. And to be clear, like it would need to be like a courtroom where it's like Judge Jim Carrey. Like it would need to be very (laughs) wacky, you know? I do think that that if, I mean, at the moment we're kind of assuming that this guy, this pilot has got a wife, but that may not be the case. That's an assumption. You know, I think it becomes even more of a kind of uh, comic if it is, you need to get us a a grandchild within a year. (laughs) Provided, then you also have to find somebody to get that grandchild with, and you have only three months to do that if this is going to work out time wise. But then you can, then then it's uh... that's a really good adjustment. And 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 you're right that it is tricky. One year sounds kind of reasonable until you factor in a couple of other things, and then the real hidden deadline is about ninety days. Yeah, he tries to get on ninety day fiance. Yeah, so this poor guy has to get has to find somebody has to get married mm-hmm. and has to get a kid yeah and, and otherwise he, right. his parents come to him on his potential. 40th birthday or something like, we're, you're you can't you can't run out the clock on this you have to get us a grandchild now we don't care how you do it but in a right. year and is it really for the grandparents or is this something they're doing because they they know that this is what he needs right, that he to needs be able push. to kind of get right. his life together. That's a really, really great question. Um, no, and I, I think, think his life needs to be much more in shambles than the original person's life seems to be. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think that that is the real jujitsu move at the heart of this script. Kind of, you eventually sort of realize, oh, wait a minute. No, like this is going to improve his life. It's probably something that he should decide to do rather than have it foisted upon him by these by these prospective grandparents. <laughs> yeah. But there is something here. Uh, this is your forty second warning. Maybe, maybe he's sort of in his in his sort of late thirties and he's still Ooh, actually living with his that. parents. This remake of Failure to Launch really has some teeth. <laughs> but we're now into the final twenty seconds. Is there a title? I mean, Owen Wilson's still age appropriate. That's yes, all I'll yes, say. he is. Wait, was that Wilson or was that McConaughey? 
No, it was McConaughey. I'm wrong about that. Uh, he's, he still looks age appropriate, though. Yeah. Uh, any ideas for titles? We have a couple seconds left on the clock. Um, I have no clue what to call this. All right, we'll just have to go with who's your granddaddy. That's pretty good. Because that is time. That's the Robert De Niro version. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's, he, he can also be part of the... It can be a, a polycule with him, Clint Eastwood, <laughs> and Dane Maggie Smith. I think this is a stealth Meet the Fucker sequel. Oh, wow. Stiller isn't in it, but he'll direct. <laughs> Whoa, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Oh, man. Uh, wow, that was a terrible idea. Thank you for bringing it. I feel so sorry for this, yeah, uh, for this couple. <laughs> or for this guy. Oh, yeah. In, in our case. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Child that they may end up bringing into the world to avoid yes. a court God. sentence. Yeah, like that child is going to have to... That, that child is going to have a bomb of a family baggage to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, little Philip Settlement Smith. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the novel series about the child for sure. That's yes. <laughs> oh. Well, all right. Let's let's move on from that. Let's wash the taste of that from our mouth and move on to our uh, next bad idea supplied by our special guest stars. We've got something very different. Good. Phenomenal. It, it is a story uh, from the New York Post. It's a fairly recent story. It's from the uh, mm-hmm. 5th of May this year. Lots of crazy things have happened to New York in May. It's, it's, I'm excited about the possibilities. <laughs> the title of this article is uh, Antiques Dealer Bought Priceless 2,000-Year-Old Roman Bust at Thrift Store for $35. I I mean, that's the antiquing deal of a lifetime. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Isn't it just? So, an antiques dealer made the find of a lifetime at a Texas Goodwill store, a 2,000-year-old priceless work of Roman art that she scooped up from measly $35. Laurie Young of Austin found the 52-pound Roman bust at the thrift store in her hometown in 2018 and figured it was worth such a modest investment. He looked Roman, he looked old, Young told the San Antonio Express News, and in the sunlight, it looked like something that could be very, very special. Young's hunch proved correct. A Sotheby's consultant later determined her extraordinary find to be a marble Julio-Claudian wow. era Roman bust that dates from the oh late first century BC to the early first century How AD. How did it end up in the reported. strip store? The... <laughs> That's quite a journey to Texas. <laughs> The bust, named (laughs) Portrait of a Man, went on display Wednesday at the San Antonio Museum of Art, where it'll stay until next May. It had once stood in the town of Aschaffenburg, Germany, in a full-scale model of a house from Pompeii called the Pompeianum, built by Ludwig I of Bavaria the museum said on its website. The bust disappeared after Allied bombers had targeted Aschaffenburg during Uh, World War II and seriously damaged the Pompeianum, according to the museum. A returning US soldier most likely brought the bust back to Texas, where it remained unknown until Young's fateful find four years ago. I picked this up in the war, just brought it back with me. (laughs) 
Young said she ultimately notified the German government of her historic discovery and made arrangements to return it to the Bavarian administration of state-owned palaces, but not until Texans and art lovers across the country get a chance to see her priceless find. The bust most likely depicts depicts Sextus Pompey, who dedicated his life to avenging his father's death. Pompey the Great, Sextus's father, had fought a civil war against his former ally Julius Caesar. Pompey then fled to Egypt after his army was defeated and was assassinated there, according to the report. It's a portrait of an outlaw, a sort of enemy of the state, San Antonio Museum of Art curational fellow Lindley McAlpine told the newspaper. It's unusual to have something like this. It's interesting that someone preserved it and had it in their collection. As a personal enemy to the emperor, it could be dangerous to display something like that. Young has detailed her four-year journey with the bust on her Instagram page for her online shop, Temple of Vintage. Yes, I got him at the Far West Goodwill here in Austin, she wrote Wednesday. Yes, he was $35. He's on loan with the San Antonio Museum of Art until next year. Wow. (laughs) I mean, if it's not entirely clear what the bad idea is, uh, or ideas are. I would like to just like run through the bad please, ideas please, please. very quickly. Yeah, let's let's get them on the table. First, selling an ancient priceless bus at a yeah. thrift store for thirty five dollars is a bad idea. <laughs> Probably marked down a, from fifty dollars. <laughs> exactly. As a soldier, I think stealing a priceless. Mm-hmm ancient artwork when you're at war you're trying yeah, to liberate Europe you're supposed to be acting as the good guy and then so going out looting yeah, is yeah. a bad idea um, then going home to Texas and displaying an ancient bust above your mantelpiece in good old suburbia <laughs> sounds a bit like a bad idea as well or even worse forgetting about it up in an attic uh, then there's the idea of giving the bust back to Germany when yeah. it's clearly Roman because yep. the earliest historical record of it is German Right. Okay. So somebody stole it. This soldier stole it from Germany and brought it to the US, but it was already loot, right? Somebody has already stolen it from Italy and brought it to Germany, but we're bringing it, we're giving the loot back to the thieves. That doesn't strike me as a particularly good idea. Although if you're in the world of museums and ancient artifacts, the logic of ownership is completely different to what it is like sure. in other parts yes. of life. Yeah. Um, now, if you're a cynic uh, and look at this with kind of monetary gain in mind, I think giving uh-huh. the priceless bust back to a museum rather than just selling it at Sotheby's, who did actually, you know, determine what it was, uh, is a bit of a terrible idea. Um, and then there's the bust itself. Apparently, someone had the nerve to make a bust of an outlaw, which is pretty cool. But, you know, if you get found out, absolutely a bad idea could get your head chopped off for that. Mm-hmm. And finally, the bust depicts Sextus Pompey, who apparently dedicated his life to avenging his father. And I would have liked to say to Sextus Pompey, had I ever met him, just go live your life. Yeah, man. Man. What's lost is lost. You know, revenge, obsession, it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. So what we're dealing with is kind of like a nestled no, like box a of bad ideas. Bad yeah. ideas. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Going back okay. all the way to the first century. Yes. Do do us a favor and yes. start that timer. Okay. And then just remind me what is the title of the bust itself? Uh, Portrait of a man. Portrait of a man. Portrait I don't care of what a we man. do. That is the title yes. of whatever this is. It's just called <laughs> Portrait of a Man. <laughs> okay. Timer is running. So we're. What jumped into my mind uh, in hearing this was all of these shows back in the early aughts of like. 
It's sort of reality, kind of a contest show. I, I forget the names of them, but it was basically like storage just storage wars and stuff like stuff that. Stuff like that, exactly, where you would have these experts and then sort of like people, like kind of like uh, varying degrees of bumpkin, like sort of contestants who would come in with like the stuff that they got from their dad's storage unit after, you know, the inevitable passing and just kind of going through like, oh, like I thought this was a bunch of junk, but it happens to be worth me. Millions. Yeah. And, and so I'm just imagining like a, a sort of Sotheby's style, like appraiser uh-huh. ending up with like a bum tire or something in a, yep. a little in back Texas. roads. Yeah, exactly. And just like stumbling on like a national treasure. It would be fun if we could get some amount of like an heirloom of the LDS church so that there's some organization like sort of breathing down their neck after a certain point. Could I build upon this, perhaps? Yeah, please. I've got three words for you guys. One froggy evening. Ooh, I like those three words. Exactly same setup as you described, Zach. We've got an antiquarian, an appraiser of some sort. He's driving across America to go from one conference to another conference. Gets a bum tire in Texas, stops at this antique store, you know, is like going through all this horrible junk, sees this bust, his Wait, jaw hits the floor. Even even better, because if this is going to like re- rebound back onto the antiquarian, it should be a garage sale. Sure, and like there sure. should be a moment. There should be a moment where like this the this young couple who are on hard times they're having to sell their beloved family home and get rid of a lot of their parents stuff and there's a moment where he could tell them that what they have is priceless oh yes exactly that's the thing like uh no this looks a little scuffed can i have it for 35 dollars could could we talk about maybe 25 Yeah. yeah Uh, no. yes. And he steals it out from under them. His car yeah. breaks down in front of this house yes. while they're doing the sale. And the adult son goes off to call a crane for him. And he's just stuck there for 10 minutes while the crane arrives. He does this. He flees like a thief in the night because he mm-hmm. is a thief in the mm-hmm. night with his mm-hmm. precious acquisition. And then he takes it to someone that might appraise yeah. it. Sotheby's, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's when the curse Sotheby's begins because... The appraiser there takes a look at it and he kind of and he kind of goes, nah, this is a piece of junk, you know, like it's not even made out of marble. Like you can clearly see the plastic, you know, this is repro, whatever. And the guy's kind of like, I assure you, this is completely real. And it just like keeps like for whatever reason, nobody besides himself can see what it is. Nobody but himself can see it as anything holding value. And in fact, Sarah, with what you just said, nobody ever offers him more than what he paid at that garage yep. sale. Like yep. nobody ever even offers him that much. Everyone is if he paid twenty dollars, everyone only offers him fifteen, ten, five dollars. It's a paperweight. We can even tie it back to Sextus Pompey because there's like, you know, a reason why someone could display this in their home because there's an ancient Roman curse on it that it doesn't <laughs> look like what it is. <laughs> 
<laughs> excellent, excellent. And I think that from there, it's the man slowly unraveling as he, mm-hmm. you know, travels first across America to try to find someone that can see this for what it is. And then it's like, no. So he goes to the British Museum. You know, those guys, they love their, you know, artifacts that shouldn't be there. So like, that's so this is an artifact yeah, that shouldn't, shouldn't be have. there. So here you go. Can you like see it for what it is? And those guys don't know. What, why are you wasting our time with this thing? He goes back to Rome. He's holding it up to other busts. They look identical. And the guys are still going, no, come on. You can see where it's painted on. You can see, you know, it's clearly plastic. It's right. Cheap. And they give it features that it doesn't have. So like, there's probably uh-huh. a moment where he questions his sanity of like, is it plastic? But it's like, no, the tail is is clearly an addition from you know the, right, the right, 16th right. they didn't century. know what they were She's doing like, when they added that tail? <laughs> i love it and of course at the end of the movie um it is it ends with him having wasted his fortune trying to um mm-hmm. get someone mm-hmm. to see this thing having to have a garage sale of his last worldly <laughs> possessions and then someone comes and he's and they sort of look at this thing and now he has a different choice because he could tell them, no, don't get that thing. That thing is cursed. That is a very, very bad thing that will make your life crash and burn because he is recognizing a twinkle in this person's eye. Mm-hmm. And he maybe sees, you know, like the badge on their jacket of the Roman aficionado society. And so he knows that if this person grabs this thing, the curse will continue. He could stop it, but he doesn't. I love it. I love it. Implying, of course, that the couple in Texas knew exactly what they had on their hands. Well, <laughs> yeah. No, this is the nerdiest version of It Follows. I'm big fan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only other way I could see it going is like eventually figuring out that, you know, there's it's it. There has to be something wrong with this object. It has to be sure. there's some property of it that obscures its true nature from people. And so then like going to Italy to try and correct whatever is wrong. Um, and, you know, that that leads to, to witchcraft shenanigans. But I don't know if we want to keep this more grounded in reality, except for the object itself. That's a good question. And it's a little bit of kind of... Is it that sort of absurdist comedy of, you know, it is just kind of watching this one man like knock his head against a Roman bust for an hour and a half as it slowly tears his life apart? Or does it kind of ever evolve into like, no, there is a curse on this and Pompey is going to come back or something right. like that? I mean, personally, I think they had a Freaky Friday sort mm-hmm. of version of this is, is funnier in a way that, that there is one magical thing, but everything else is just what it is. Yeah. I, I do. I just wonder, like, if he tries to bring it back to Italy, though, because that might happen. Yes. Um, can the bust enter Italy? It was, is it part of the curse? Is it, mm. you know, if Julius Caesar mm. hated this man? That's a good question. You know, is it just like his visa suddenly doesn't, you know, has expired, right. even though he got it the day before? His passport just won't beep in the freaking machine. It's just like everything goes wrong. Our ostensible hero, he can enter Italy, okay. But whoops, his check baggage ended up in Bali. You know, right. what a wild, uh, wild <laughs> mistake that the airline makes. Right, um, and then he asks to, the, for them to send it to his hotel. He opens it up. It's like some seashells from someone else's right, trip to Bali. Right, yeah. And the bus is MIA. And then he has another choice because there's an off-ramp here. He could just have an Italian vacation. 
Well, this is the thing. I don't know that there can be. I think that there needs to be a dynamic where the moment that he sets foot outside of Italy, somebody finds him with a DHS, like, with a, you know, FedEx truck. Sure, sure, and sure. And they're like, oh, sir, we have this package for you. And he's like, <laughs> how did this get here? I don't live here. How did this find me? I like that. That's funny. And maybe the bust actually creates Italy uh-huh. around itself. Because, like, one of the things that I found fascinating in the article is this thing that it was displayed in this weird thing called the Pompeianum, which was like a, yeah. a kind of yeah. a replica Roman villa. But maybe what if in this sub- suburban home, it's suddenly the, you know, suddenly, suddenly columns start <laughs> growing next to the door. And suddenly it's kind of like basically this bust kind of, yeah, kind of turns its into surroundings into. Yeah. Um, it would have to be a yeah, Romulus yeah. instead then, but I'm so for that. <laughs> How much time do we have, by the way? Oh, uh, yes, we've got uh, 30 seconds. Oh, dear. Well, I'll say this much. Uh, since we already know that the title is Portrait of a Man. Yes. There's a recurring <laughs> joke on No Bad Ideas that most of the male leads are played by either, um, oh my God, who plays Nick Ron Offerman. Swanson? Yeah, by Nick, Nick Offerman. Offerman. Or <laughs> by, um, oh my God, um, he was in Marriage Story in Star Wars. Oh, Adam Driver. Adam Driver. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I think that this feels more like an Adam Driver vehicle, um, <laughs> if only because I think that one of his many times alluding to him in um, last week tonight, John Oliver, I can see him describing him and then going something like, conquer my <laughs> legions, you Roman bust, yeah. or something like that. <laughs> so I do think that this is an Adam oh. Driver vehicle. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) And time's up. Incredible. I think you would have that right neurotic edge of kind of just like, why can't you see it? No, I I would like to see Adam. It's it's been a while since girls. Adam Driver should play a sleaze bag. (laughs) Return to your roots, Adam. We miss you. We miss you. Gentlemen, what a delightful find. Thank you for that bad idea, for that matryoshka doll of badness and the terrible notions. You're welcome. I think we need to take a quick trip to Rome for unrelated reasons. Uh, but when we come back, we will have more with Philip and Oystein. Hello there, Zach Valenti, jumping into this episode with this brief reminder that we have an active Patreon page to support the production of No Bad Ideas and all the other crazy worlds we're building behind the scenes. To check that out, scope the sweet rewards we offer for monthly subscriptions, as well as how to sign up yourself. Head on over to nobadideaspodcast.com slash support. Once more, that's nobadideaspodcast.com slash support. If you already support the show, we so appreciate that. And regardless, thank you for listening. All right, let's get back to more No Bad Ideas. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited for this half of the show. Uh, For anybody who hasn't heard uh, my uh, participation um, as Mr. Love Actuary, uh, it is 
just it was such a joy to be a part of the show and would love to just start out with uh, what was your guys audio fiction superhero origin story for the folks who aren't familiar? Well, it was so the idea of uh, death faking agency is something that uh, I had about six years ago. Um, I had just moved to uh, to Paris, where I still am now. Nowadays, I love this city, but back then um, I was thoroughly, uh, thoroughly depressed. And I was working an incredibly uh, dull job as a, uh, as a business English teacher, which kind of sounds fancy, but it kind of involved zigzagging across the city, uh, teaching uh, bored employees who had been told, to uh, to learn English, uh, and uh, I found myself kind of daydreaming about what it would be like to start a new life. And I was uh, sort of thinking about would I, yeah, just just playing kind of that thought experiment with myself of like if if somebody off said like you could um, you could start again tomorrow, and like would I take that, and what would I do, and so on. And uh, yes, that this um, this kind of of somewhat dark thought experiments, I guess, kind of led to uh, an, an absurd comedy about faking the death of the Loch Ness Monster and uh, a, a, a politician called Bartholomew Fuckface Chucklepants Knucklecracker. Um, so, um, <laughs> now, can you say that five times in a row very quickly? <laughs> Felix Trench can. <laughs> oh, but that man can say anything. He can say anything. <laughs> he is unstoppable. Uh, yeah, I mean that, that's that, that that's the, the, the that's sort of I think how the the idea for the uh, for, for the premise of the show came up. But in terms of like working in audio. Do you want to talk about that, Dostone? Yeah. I mean, at the time, Pip and I, you know, used to live in London and used to work together in London. But then Pip moved to Paris. I moved back to Oslo and we were running our theatre company kind of out of Oslo with a base in Oslo for a while. But there was a lot of, I mean, it's really hard to make theatre when you're not in the same space and not in the same geographical location. Um, and I brought Pip over for various projects, but it was getting less and less possible and reasonable to travel so much, uh, you know, yeah. financially, you need funding, you need to actually have a project so that there's a point to, tra you know, in traveling, etc. So it, producing was really hard. And I think Pip and I, as collaborators, uh, we kind of missed each other <laughs> I, um, as collaborator and, uh, and as friends. Um, so we started kind of writing together a little bit, which meant that we could send things back and forth. So that was sort of the early beginnings of it. And we wrote a play uh, called The Magician's Death. But then uh, when Pip came up with this idea and we met in London, which is obviously where you should meet when you live in Oslo and Paris. Of course, um, of course. We, we sat for a very, very long day in a cafe just talking about this idea of death faking and then came on to this idea of, well, what if we do it for audio? What if we try making it as an audio fiction uh, for a, and release it as a podcast? Can we work digitally? Can we keep collaborating on something and have a massive project together? So that's how that all began. And at the time, we actually, we didn't know about audio fiction as such. I mean, we knew about radio drama because 
uh, because you know in in Britain radio drama is a is a big thing, um, but but it has a very very different audience to fiction podcasts, and we didn't yeah we we didn't kind of know about the 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 the, the indie fiction podcast scene at this point, and we treated the whole thing pretty like a play really because that's sort of what we knew. Yeah. So although we we chose this medium in order so, so that we could collaborate whilst living in different countries for the actual recording for the first season we did actually get everybody together um uh we we did it exactly like we would do a theater play only on uh only that it allowed us to do it on a on a radically reduced uh time frame so whereas for a play we would need to get everybody together for a month for this we got everybody together um for one day to to rehearse and then for two days to record um and it uh and then since then it's it's been a sort of gradual learning process of like how much of this process you can actually do um do remote and discovering that there is this wonderful uh audio fiction community out there and yeah learning uh, learning more and more in terms of how uh, um, how it's possible to produce um, uh, a show digitally and spread across initially Europe and now uh, and, and now the world. The world. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious what you've kept from your theater experience because I, I this sounds very familiar of just like wanting to be able to do a project and audio being the place where that's possible. Um, and mm. you learn a lot of things about audio that are unique to it. But I'm curious what from your theater background you've kept as you've now done like four seasons of the show. I think it is still very important for us uh, to get people together, even if it's not physically in the same space that we if it's yeah. longer scenes, if it's scenes with particular, you know, that needs where the, where the characters need to kind of really riff off each other, whether that's for comedy or whether that's for um, emotional content to actually have people the actors be able to hear each other at least and and record at the same time and react to each other makes mm -hmm. i find that makes a huge difference um i find that that creates the show that we want to create and that creates the situations and the spontaneity and the improvisations and the reactions that that we kind of thrive off in in our format in our in our story we don't manage to do that all the time but like i said we for the the big moments and for longer scenes and, and so on we we really strive to meet in some way or other that's awesome and because what what we like to do as well is we like to uh we, we go through through an episode um sort of section by section working on each on each unit of it and and recording that unit several times and then when we get to the end we do one complete run through and then we tell the actors to forget all about our directions and even to be free with the script and forget about the script and then to do another take which is by this time we've got sort of everything uh that we need in the can so then the the last take is a kind of wild take where they can just have fun and 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 play with it and um and uh and some of that always ends up in the in the original uh, yeah in 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 the final episode yeah. um and uh yeah so 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 that's that's also something that that uh, sort of comes i think from from sort of uh yeah rehearsal room experience um I think the show is also, uh, or at least in in the earlier seasons, is kind of structured more like a, like a play than uh, it, it it follows uh, 
it's sort of um, it, it has a sort of unity of space and time and action as opposed to um, a lot of uh, audio fiction shows which follow more of a sort of TV dramaturgy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's yeah I think there's that as well. Very cool. I think we have a very similar experience in how we love to work in audio fiction as far as getting everybody in the same room and um, sort of starting with that structure and direction and then sort of letting letting the magic happen, so to speak. Um, having mm. uh, participated in the Amelia, Amelia Project remotely and in our own experience with Unseen um, as sort of the first project that we really went remote, uh, I'm curious uh, what you found works in the less ideal circumstances that uh, we more and more find ourselves in these days. Hopefully not forever. Yeah. I mean, I think one key to just making things work is just working with the right people. If you know your casting is right, and if you've got somebody who who has at least some experience, then you get a performance that is possible to kind of edit together with other people's performances and that has spontaneity and live, you know, and and that live kind of feel to it, even though it isn't. Uh, and it is possible to kind of tweak and match and, uh, and, and try to create it. So I think that the quality of the people you work with is key. Yeah, and, and we've tried using so we we try as much as possible to get everybody together to to record via um, uh, clean feed or uh, uh, the other day we were using Skype. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! Nobody badmouth Skype on my show. No, I'm kidding. We <laughs> um, can't get Skype to run ads on this. Not now. That's um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, no. So, I mean, the, the, our, our, our first choice is always kind of to, to try and kind of do it, do it via, um, uh, via some kind of, uh, yeah, video conference or, or audio only kind of thing. And then, um, but, uh, we often run into schedule difficulties because, yeah, because we're in Europe and then we work with people from all sorts of different time zones. So, um, so so it's it's sort of what's what's possible really now speaking of kind of all these people that are involved in the show um one of the one of my favorite things about amelia is the people that come in to the service seeking these new lives because they're always i think the way that i want to put it is they're always this like fantastic mix of deranged yet relatable like it is mm-hmm. always these people who are at the end of their rope and are in these wild situations, but there's still always kind of that grain that I think you can trace back to that moment that you talk about, Pip, of kind of looking around your life and kind of going, God, I wish that I was someone else. I wish that I was somewhere else. How do you come up with these weirdos and these desperate souls that kind of visit Amelia? Like, where do these characters come from? My God. Oh, you had to ask that question, didn't you? Um, I did. (laughs) It is such a... Uh, an impossible question to answer because I don't know if we know. Um, They appear, they, they come out of thin air. They, they start in very different ways, but they, Mm -hmm. they often start as kind of a nugget of an idea. And then you just have to kind of sit with that idea for a while until you kind of go, is, is this actually a story? Is this actually a person with, with, who has a kind of, has a desperation? Is there a desperation to be found there? Mm. Or is this just a wacky characterization that, that sounds funny? In which case, yeah. drop it, you know? 
um, you you need to kind of live with them for a little bit. And some for some characters, that's more obvious than others. Some characters come in and uh, into your mind and they and and have that desperation right away. And others don't necessarily. They come from other places. You know, our, our uh, episode about the kind of hell theme park, for example, um, the the um, Luke Dougal who wants to disappear. Um, the the idea of having a the a hell themed theme park is actually an idea that I've had uh, since I was a kid. Like uh-huh. I was a bit of a morbid kid, and I thought that would be the coolest theme park ever. And at some point, I told Pip about this idea and all the crazy rides that would be there and everything. Um, and then Pip goes away, and suddenly he's like, you know, woven that idea into a story about a man who is ended up in a horrible feud uh, with his business partner. But that comes, you know, then a lot later in a way. And there's something else there that kind of tickles us and tickles you so much. And you're like, there's got to be, there's got to be something here, right? There's got to be a desperation right. here. And then other characters come in and, and have that desperation right away. Like the, the episode Raven, uh, the, this girl who comes in and says, I, uh, you know, I, wherever I go, somebody dies. Mm-hmm. That was the beginning of that idea. What, what if you think you, you precede death, as she says? Mm-hmm. Um, what if you think that you're an, a bad omen? Yeah. What yeah. do you do? How do you, how can you live? Um, and then from that, you know, I built a character and I built a story and managed to kind of whack some jokes into that, uh, otherwise rather serious, uh, idea. I mean, the, 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 the ideas sometimes start off quite serious or kind of start off quite dark in, in a way like like the show <laughs> itself uh, and then kind of become the <laughs> colorful eccentric um, comedy yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> an episode where that happened is alicia ken for, for example as well you know this 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 episode about somebody wanting to to escape their identity which initially uh that was one of your oh you you, you wrote yeah. an initial draft of that item which was very dark um, very, and alicia was very bitter she was very angry yeah. with her mm. uh, TV company for having sort of stolen her identity through this contract and saying that they now own her life. And then through a, through a process of kind of back and forth, eventually that's become uh, one of the uh, one of the silliest episodes of uh, of, of, of season one. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, but it but but it still has that kind of grounding, I think, in a in an underlying uh, existential issue. But, but absolutely. It, as for- yeah, to answer the question, like the question, like where do they come from? Um, I don't think that's something I kind of can answer really, because it's I don't I don't know. I'm sure it is from stuff I read. I'm sure it is from stuff I hear, but it's gone through some kind of process in my mind. So you know whether this idea is based on something I heard two weeks ago or twenty years ago, I don't know. I don't sure. I don't know the origins of of ideas. And that's I mean, what most of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but one of the wonderful things about this show is that it just allows us to it's it, yeah it it allows us to bring in so many ideas for kind of character ideas or kind of story ideas or joke ideas that we've had or that that have just been kicking around for a long yeah. time like yeah. Einstein mentioned this kind of hell park idea that he's had since he was a kid because the format of the show kind of allows 
for that. And the format of the show also allows us to kind of riff on genres a lot, um, which mm-hmm. is another thing that I think that is sometimes also the origin of a client idea. It's because we want to uh, explore yeah. a particular genre. And mm-hmm. often a client who comes into the Amelia project doesn't just bring a reason to disappear, but also brings <clears> with <throat> them a genre. So, you know, um, uh, we have the AI Siri come into the office. And so then that allows us to kind of explore sci-fi and dystopia, or we have, um, yeah, the, the, the hell park episode, uh, allows us to explore horror or sort of yeah, comedy horror. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so, so, so that's something that, 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 that we really, uh, really enjoy with this, this particular show as well. Have you stumbled on a favorite genre in your exploits no genres are kind of ripe for the picking i think you you kind of gotta shop between them what about a favorite client have either one of do either one of you have sort of like a set of first among equals for you that can all, you love all of your children equally <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. That's, but it's okay <laughs> you can tell us which one is really your favorite <laughs> we won't tell them it'll be our little secret i feel very pressured uh, to say mr love now but uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> 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 Mr. Love is a really wonderful, was a really wonderful character to write and, and wonderfully portrayed. But I don't, I'm sorry, Zach, I don't think it's my favorite. Oh, no, that's perfectly um, all right. It was super fun to play such uh, a, a, a nice guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, with a lot of air quotes. Um, no, I, I think, I mean, one of the later characters that, that I did feel very fondly about was... Um, was Raven actually hmm. with her predicament, yeah. um, and, I, and we have got a lot of kind of a very positive feedback on that episode as well, um, especially on how the interviewer kind of takes a very different tack with her because she's so fragile as opposed to most of the characters who come in and are very kind of strong-willed and strong-headed, yeah. and she comes in and is actually quite frail, and then he does something, he behaves very differently, and I think that sort of change in his mannerisms and and um, and behavior struck a chord with a lot of our audience, which then makes me very happy about the the episode. Brilliant. I think uh, I, I agree about Raven. I think Raven is 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 one of my favorite characters. I, I also think Alexandra from uh, from season three, um, mm. who is a scientist who invents a truth serum uh, be, um, uh, because she herself uh, sees through other people's lies. Um, and that has made her life intolerable. And so she's actually inventing this truth serum in order to get everybody else to the same level as she is. So, so, so that, uh, her curse basically becomes commonplace. Yeah. That, that, that's another character I'm very fond of. It's been a genius branding exercise for your show to have its association <laughs> with Coco as well. <laughs> what is the origin of that? How did the idea that these people would run on Coco come about? I mean, that, it, that, I mean, it wasn't, it was never meant to be the symbol of the show in the way that, that it has become. That it literally I think, is now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, really, totally. I mean, it, originally it was just because, I mean, the show kind of riffs a lot off off the kind of detective genre and uh-huh. often in detective shows like the detective will have a signature drink and it'll often be something uh, strong and manly that kind of yeah. um, reflect you know whiskey or black coffee or something like that um and uh, so we thought like well we want to 
do the opposite, obviously, and what and, and what is a silly drink? And uh, mm. so I think that's that's I think that's how it sort of came about. It was kind of like well, cocoa seems like a a silly whimsical drink, um, right. and then also the fact that it's kind of um, there's some we, we also specifically chose the word the word cocoa rather than hot chocolate because there's something childlike and something very yeah. soothing about cocoa, um, and then it that is kind objectively of con- a funnier word like <laughs> it's, cocoa it's, it's, rather than chocolate. <laughs> Yeah, it's a funny word and it's a soothing word, and that kind of um, pitched against the business of the grisly business of death fakery. Um, yeah. That that kind of that kind of tickled us, and then it just yeah, and then people kind of picked up on that, and uh, yeah, did also very early on, you know, before the show was launched, it did find its way into the logo of the show. And, and at that point, when an, our designer, Anders Pedersen, uh, designed the logo, he had very little to go on. You know, it was this idea of a death faking agency and we had the first, you know, episode or two written. Mm-hmm. So, okay, what are the th- what are the elements? I remember sort of sitting in his living room kind of going, well, what are the elements here? What are we going to, what can, what can the logo for this show look like? And then it was like, well, we have the idea of, of rebirth and reinvention. A phoenix seems to make sense. And uh, what about uh, the, the, this cocoa thing? What if the what if the phoenix comes out of a mug of cocoa? Yeah, that'd be fun, you know. And then suddenly, that's just it. It was a thing. Yeah. So, uh, not to hold you hostage for uh, any cough cough <laughs> news, but uh, before we let you go, we did hear that there was news to be had. There is news to be had. We are mm. uh, in the process of writing uh, our fifth season. Um, as we're recording this, we've just released our season four finale. Um, and one of the, the new things that we're doing in season five is that Pip and I are kind of uh, loosening the reins a little bit. And we've invited in uh, some guest writers to write on the show. Drive it into the ground. <laughs> one of which is the fabulous Gabriel Urbina. So it we is. are. Oh in- my God. <laughs> We are incredibly excited to have Gabriel uh, write for uh, The Amelia Project and can't wait to see what that episode turns out like. And we hope that listeners of No Bad Ideas will be equally excited by that. So if you haven't checked out The Amelia Project, that is yet another reason to now go and start from episode one so that you'll catch up by the time Gabriel's episode is written, produced and released. Absolutely. And I am so excited to get to work on this show. I don't think that we're allowed to talk yet about what is coming for that. But knowing what's in the hopper, I'm very, very excited to take this in a very different direction than anything that we've done on, or anything that has been done on the show so far. Um, Absolutely. And once that episode is out, we definitely need to have you guys back on the show and we can then do the spoilerific (laughs) post-game for that episode. That sounds like a plan. Well, in the meantime, though, we are going to let you guys go um, since we, we all need to get back to making that future season of Amelia Project happen. Where can folks find you, though? Like if they want to listen to your work, if they want to see more of your stuff, um, what's the place to go or the places to go? So our website is ameliapodcast.com and you can search for The Amelia Project on pretty much any podcatcher. Um, And we're also on Twitter, which is Amelia underscore podcast. All right. Well, thank you both so much for being on the show. It's been amazing and a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yeah, of Of course. course. We're going to go get some um, cups of cocoa now that we've talked about it so much. Um, I know what I'm craving, uh, but we'll be back soon with more No Bad Ideas. 
This has been No Bad Ideas, produced by Gabrielle Urbina, Sarah Shackett, and Zach Valenti. Many thanks to our patrons for their partnership in making this show happen. And a special shout out to our idealist members, Jennifer Schneider, Rena Sarame, Jeffrey Felsher, and Dia. Today's episode features music by Statesher and Jazar from freemusicarchive.org. You can support the show at nobadideaspodcast.com slash support. And if you love this show, please leave a rating or review wherever you listen and share it with someone you love.